I-V-M. Open the international section of any newspaper these days and you will see something on the ongoing US-China trade war. There are some analysts who are even saying that this is a new iron curtain that's forming between the American and Chinese spheres of influence. On a previous episode of the Pragati podcast, Anupam and Manoj explain how this is really an ongoing US-China battle of tariffs. On the second episode of this two-episode special, they explain how we are seeing the first signs of a US-China war for technology that will play out in the years and decades to come. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly talk show on economics, public policy and international relations. I am your host, Pavan Srinath. Joining me today are my colleagues and frequent guests, Manoj Keval Ramani and Anupam Manur. Manoj Keval Ramani is an Associate Fellow for China Studies at the Takshashila Institution. Before joining us, Manoj spent several years working in China in journalism, in manufacturing and more. Now he writes a weekly column on thinkpragati.com called Eye on China and his recent research includes a detailed examination of Chinese plans to become a leader in artificial intelligence. Anupam Manur is an assistant professor at the Takshashila Institution who teaches and researches on economic issues. He's a macroeconomist by training and his most recent research is on how tech platforms like Amazon, Facebook and Google could be governed in India. We'll be back with Manoj and Anupam to talk about the US-China battle for technology after this short break. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure that you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So this week on Instagram, we asked everybody to tell us about their New Year's resolutions, and we had some really interesting interactions with our audience on based on that. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, do check us out. On Cyrus Says, Cyrus is joined by the habit coach Ashton Doctor, who talks about the importance of healthy habits, simple tricks to meditate, and his new podcast, The Habit Coach. Speaking of The Habit Coach, in a three-part series, Ashton shares his golden secrets to achieving New Year resolutions. On the Pragati Podcast, Pawan is joined by Dr. Jay Prakash Narayan. They discuss India's success and failures as a republic and a democracy. On Talle Harate, legal expert Alok Prasanna Kumar discusses the Supreme Court judgment on Aadhaar and its implication on citizens. On Geek Fruit, Tejas, Jishnu and Dinkar do a recap of their favorite films from 2018. And on IBM Likes, Janam Surbi and Abbas give out some cool pop culture recommendations and discuss the new Netflix horror movie Bird Box, starring Sandra Bullock. And with that, let's get you back to your show. Hi Anupam, hi Manoj, welcome back to the Pragati Podcast. We've just been discussing with both of you about how we don't actually have a US-China trade war that has been happening since last year. It's actually been a battle for tariffs. And currently we are during a ceasefire period. And in the ceasefire period, the Americans have given out eight broad wants from China that the Chinese should meet. And the Chinese have broken these eight points down into 120, 140 something. Yeah, about something. 120 something, yeah. 120 something points. And um, Manoj, you were just saying, uh, telling us on the last part that about 40 of these items, the Chinese are ready to give, 40% they can, and there is another that is a no-go area. Yeah, they basically said 40% we can do immediately, 40 we will do, and the rest we can't touch. And in the end of our last episode, uh, both of you also hinted that the real war here might be for something else, might be for technology, and that might just be brewing now. So it's not broken out fully. To start this off, uh, Anupam, can you tell us what was in these eight points or these 120, 140 points? What was the nature of them? What was Trump and the United States asking from China for? Broadly, you have to go back to that fair trade argument that we were speaking about. U.S. wants of China what China gets from the U.S. in terms of market access, in terms of ease of entry of American products into Chinese markets with as little conditionalities as possible. As of now, if a U.S. company has to go into China, it has to meet X number of conditions, which is, for example, you have to um, partner up with a Chinese firm if you're producing something. You ha- which will then forcibly have technology transfer as part of it. Um, and you have some sort of local sourcing requirements. You have, um, even in terms of labor employment, you have to employ so many Chinese people and so on. Now, lots of countries do this, but on a much smaller scale. India itself, in our FDI and retail, for example, we have a local sourcing requirement. 
but it's not anywhere as severe as uh, what china does so entry into china is not easy for foreign companies even if they do enter you find that it is quite difficult for these companies to operate in china because it's again not a level playing field chinese companies have that edge and then so that's one aspect of it how does so the edge as in the chinese state helps them out in some in way. some ways they get easier access to credit and so on but that can still be managed so that but the other requirements and conditionalities are not that easy to meet without giving away something that is very dear to you that's one aspect of it the other aspect of it is what again we spoke about which is reducing china's kind of involvement and uh, interference in export and import so can you stop subsidizing the chinese companies which export to the us again that those are much um you know standard kind of requirements that the us has put which i think so if if you look at china's position in this that 40% that they agreed to these are things that they were they are planning to do anyway this is part of that rebalancing you're saying that subsidy um providing a level playing field for exporters and domestic producers within china broadly some sort of i mean so they they they're trying to rebalance their economy in any way which means that you need to have higher incomes of the chinese people which means that you can't afford to you know manufacture really cheap products through depressed wages and then export it right because you know and and, and then the second part of it is what do you do with that increased uh you know incomes you also want chinese citizens now to have the best quality consume the best quality products which means they're also planning to open up imports in a much bigger way and so on so uh, a large part of it is what china was doing or planning to do anyway and is underway some bit of it i think they are making true concessions and i think manoj can kind of come in here and give details of that aspect of it but yeah there's some bits which they're not ready to do at all because they want to get the maximum advantage of letting american companies in so for example um the chinese firewall is not what they're willing to take down anytime soon they're not even willing to completely make all of these conditionalities disappear they want to retain some of those conditionalities because they feel that that's the only way that chinese companies can actually grow get american technology grow and then they believe china at some stage honestly believes that that is the way to create a level playing field my sort of take on this is and i agree with quite a bit of what anupam has said uh, that some of the concessions that the chinese are sort of planning to make or they have offered or they were sort of tentatively agreed to um relate to what sort of reforms they're already considering um i would look at the demands that the us has put in sort of a certain set of brackets so i'd look at uh, you know market access technology transfer intellectual property rights and sort of opening up of the economy generally for capital and for goods i'd look at these sort of separately on intellectual property rights there is a vested interest in china to improve the regime on ip protection and also uh, enforce stricter penalties and that's because as your companies begin to innovate more you need more protection too you need a better governed market within the country over the years the chinese sort of i let me just give you the simplest example of content there is barely any uh, intellectual property protection on content in china whether that is sort of textual content shared on news apps whether that is uh, video content um, while i was living in china um, i frequently accessed american movies freely on chinese video streaming platforms and these were not obscure video streaming platforms i frequently accessed just about every other indian movie which the day it was released i could see it on yuku or one of these platforms so some of these things you need to do uh, better and they i think recognize that also uh, so the original content creator is getting nothing is getting nothing because these are obviously pirated prints and they're easily available and they're uploaded in a flash um so but content is sort of just one sort of example to explain how weak the regime is um and as chinese companies sort of innovate more where you know where you're creating better voice recognition technology facial recognition technology you want to protect some of your innovations too so um, just to kind of give an example in the newer technological fields like ai and ml machine learning and so on china has filed about as many patents as the us has in the last couple of years absolutely uh, and in a lot of such fields china is filing a lot more patents which means that it is in it also in its own interest to have 
kind of a strong regime in terms of uh, absolutely anti- in in historical perspective this was sort of the united states versus europe i don't know 100 years ago 150 years ago right so you had a lot of european innovation and in technology yeah. patents from the cotton gin to everything else yeah and you had americans who were routinely flouting those patent laws yeah. and just making copies and doing tech transfer and so on to help the american economy grow china has been doing that very successfully over the last absolutely. 20 30 40 absolutely. years absolutely and that's an argument that you will frequently see made <laughs> in chinese media in the last year and a half where they will trace it back to that era and they will say well this is the pattern of growth so you can't really accuse us of stealing technology and there's a bit of fairness in that because if you look at this kind of catch up in the growth process almost every country has been guilty of it south korea and taiwan and and uh, you know singapore and so on blatantly copied japanese technology while they were growing that's and that's how they became kind of the leaders in uh, innovation in electronic products uh, india yeah. has been flouting ip laws <laughs> without a concern in the world in pharmaceuticals uh, not not necessarily in everything not right? in everything but in uh, quite and, a few. not just that but india's patent laws were itself different right till yeah. um, what 20 odd years ago we had only process patents yeah. so you could not uh, patent a final drug molecule for example and which is why we have a, one of the most competitive Uh, generics industries in the world we have amazing synthetic chemists in india and uh, so in that sense even like sitting from india that makes sense but yes. at the same time i agree with your larger point because again if i look at pharmacy in india now how are you going to incentivize people to make drugs for india absolutely unless you um, have a strong ip regime where you are allowing especially drug companies anything which with high upfront cost hmm. right and low marginal cost where you have to make that up and you yeah. need some government protected yeah. monopoly yeah no i i agree i agree and, and that's the sort of conversation on intellectual property um the other aspects that i had spoken about which was uh, around forced technology transfer um sort of ties in some way to intellectual property rights but this has a lot to do with uh, the way foreign companies and foreign enterprises enter china uh, i'll give you the example of the auto sector where essentially legally you're required to enter in partnership with a domestic player you're supposed to be a minority stakeholder in that partnership obviously the chinese constantly have emphasized that there is no written law that you need to transfer technology but the way these things work technology gets transferred expertise gets transferred and you end up creating a partner which is valuable for you because you also need somebody who can grease the wheels with the local officials and the government and you also need local knowledge so a lot of companies western companies made a lot of money by doing this but also you ended up transferring technology you ended up transferring skills and today when the chinese in the auto sector particularly have said that we are going to liberalize uh, we're going to allow 100% ownership of foreign enterprises um, there are very few takers for this some um, xi jinping made this sort of this was one of his bold reform promises at the boa forum in april um and since then we've hardly seen anybody get in and say we want to do a we want to go back on our partnerships because you've built a relationship you've created somebody whom you separate with will become your competitor do you really want that particularly in a highly charged political economy that china is um do you really want that but but tell me how is this fundamentally different from say the foreign direct investment conversations we've had in india right i mean on a whole bunch of sectors we'll allow 24% fdi we'll allow 49% fdi and even if we cross that then there can be automatic um, uh, fdi or uh, there can rule. be um, the department of industrial dipp dipp i don't know what the one is promotion the other p i don't remember what it stands for but they are this body which will say yes or no to whoever coming in hmm. and which is why even with 100% fdi in retail single brand or multi brand ikea has only set up operations now in hyderabad after so much uh, legally right so what is different in china compared to this scenario is it just size see i think fundamentally in principle there is very little difference it's what happens in practice um in practice um an indian player w- sort of in india who's partnering with a foreign company that's bringing in fdi um the political linkage and network and patronage and subsidy and support that this indian player will get a private indian player is very different from what a chinese player will get because 
let's just look at it this way. Most Chinese companies today have to have party committees. Everything, that's why I use the phrase, the political economy of China. It is deeply political. So if you end up breaking, if you end up sort of going parting ways and then try to run your shop on your own, there can be far more hurdles for you than you could have imagined. And in the process, what you've done is that you've created a company which rivals you and which not just rivals you now in the Chinese market, but potentially in the export market. Um, so there is a difference in that. It's also a level of scale. I mean, today, if Indian companies are at the level where they can potentially challenge Western companies internationally, the incentive sort of changes and the conversation around India changes also. And that's part of it. So part of it is about where Chinese development is at. And part of it is the sort of political costs of going back on some of this. That you've the political advantages of entering into these partnerships and the political costs of going back on some of this. The only company that, to my knowledge, has said that we will take you up on this offer of 100% ownership is Tesla. And Tesla held out saying we won't invest unless this comes through. And it's only when the Chinese announced that this is something that, and they're doing this in a phased manner over a period of a couple of years. Um, and that's where Elon Musk has now picked up land in Shang, around Shanghai, uh, around that area in Zhejiang and saying that you're going to be building this factory. Whether that happens, whether that's economic, um, given that Tesla deals with electric vehicles and that's again a heavily subsidized market in China. Um, and in many other parts of the world. I mean, the US is not, yeah. uh, not subsidized Tesla. So uh, it depends on whether that's going to be successful. So it's not just about this particular aspect, but it's also about your competition is going to be deeply subsidized. And if you're going to be competing in the Chinese market, which frankly is the biggest market in the world today, um, how are you going to be able to compete effectively? So that's one of those arguments. The final component of these broad demands by the US is a lot of the Chinese development plans. Uh, I mentioned Made in China 2025 the last time. There's a robotics plan. There's an AI plan. Yeah, you have an entire report out on the AI plan. Absolutely. So all of these talk about uh, indigenization um, and the share of domestic companies uh, being at a certain level. And that's a mandated goal that we want to get at. So particularly on, say, robotics and something like that, you want to get to about 70% of industrial robots used in China should be from Chinese companies as opposed to just made in China. Um, they're not doing well when it comes to meeting that goal. Um, but there are goals of the such a sort of indigenization, which will obviously sort of undercut competition, even if you have free competition, because if that's your goal. Um, so that's a structural thing that they also want changed uh, with regard to some of this government planning. So that's how I would categorize these broad demands that the Americans have made. So you have these broad demands. So in that sense, just to go back to this idea of um, FDI and so on, in India, we have had, say, the growth of Flipkart, right? So, and here, yes, Flipkart created a lot of its own technologies, but the model of what Flipkart as an e-commerce company was, was not terribly different from what the model of Amazon in many ways was. And the two in India end up, you know, you copy each other, you innovate, you do what you can. And then eventually Flipkart, which while legally may not have been an Indian company to begin with, <laughs> maybe based in Singapore, but could be bought over by the likes of Walmart where now all of Flipkart's technology and know-how belongs to Walmart. Hmm. And, right? and Walmart can dip, add its own expertise and do more things in this space. Hmm. Uh, something like that would not be terribly easy in China, right? It would be extremely difficult, particularly a player uh, of the stature and size of what Flipkart has been in India. I mean, we're talking about your premier e-commerce platform. Um, if I'm going to look at any of Alibaba's platforms, it would be unimaginable for the Chinese to acknowledge that this needs to be sold to a Western company. No, So you can't have a hostile purchase of a Chinese company Nearly by a foreign impossible. company. In the fact, state the other has in. happened. Yeah. The other way has happened. You've had Uber, which has been taken over by Didi, right? Uh, and, and I'm sure there are other small examples of this where a US company has gone into China in order to operate and compete, but has not been able to, and then there's a hostile takeover by the Chinese company. That is one angle of it. I think a lot more interesting aspect of this is Chinese takeover of American firms in the US. I think if you look at this, uh, there is there are a couple of reasons why you might sell out. Um, but 
my presumption would be one of the primary reasons would be uh, capital. That would be one of the reasons. You could have many other reasons also, but capital would form a pretty important base of it. For if you look at Chinese companies, uh, or probably even expanded market share, you know, a greater market to play with and all of those things. Chinese companies tend to have a very large market to play with, which is a domestic market, which is deeply protected. Secondly, given that the government is willing to subsidize and willing to raise debt, uh, and access to credit is easy. Capital is not that big an issue. So what, for a Chinese company, for a Chinese company, particularly for some of these bigger players, capital is not that big an issue. Um, what's important is greater sort of technical know-how, greater expertise, and newer markets to get into, um, and therefore you're looking outside. So therefore, a lot of this is what exactly what Anupam was saying is that it's Chinese companies that are looking to go to the US and to Europe and to go and buy up some of these new innovators in these countries um, and sort of expand and diversify. Yeah, China has been investing kind of on a very aggressive path and buying up, especially in startups, uh, which they see has potential in the future, such that the technologies that is developed in elsewhere, you can kind of copy that and bring it back home to China. So it's been doing that in the US, it's been doing that in Europe, it's been doing that in India. And again, uh, this has been given a free reign. It's not that they started yesterday. They've been doing it for quite some time. But it's only in the last year or so when this trade war began, again, or, or the tariff battle as we called it, um, began is when they started taking notice of these things as well. Saying that, how do you actually look at Chinese acquisition of US firms? Is that something that we have to look much deeper into? And in fact, now they've put a lot more restrictions. So it's kind of funny where on one hand, US is asking China to stop doing these things but US itself is doing these which it was not doing before so the CFIUS for example right yeah so what's happened is that the US has obviously put certain restrictions under its committee on foreign investment which is going to be vetting more foreign investment in certain sectors um, because it needs so this to... is the American DIP <laughs> exactly yes yes and uh, what the US wants to do is essentially citing a national security argument and saying that we need to be vetting some of these investments um, because a lot of Chinese companies have links to the Chinese state and with the state state is setting certain uh, sort of industrial policy goals with regard to firms that are working in AI, robotics and the likes um, or semiconductors. We should be very mindful of their investments because they're just here to steal our technology. Um, so it's the national security argument that some of these are sensitive technologies with uh, quote-unquote dual usability uh, where you can use them in warfare and... Uh, and various things as well as in the economy? Is that sort yes, of the uh, yes, leading argument? Yes, that is the argument. It has to do with both. So I think the US under Trump has used the argument of national security across the board for everything. Steel tariffs were also a national, national security, security argument. Mm -hmm. So that's like you say something about a political leader in the country and you get charged with sedition charges in India, right? Absolutely. Everything is sedition. Absolutely. Okay. For everything is national security even here. Absolutely. So I want to take a small detour here. Mm -hmm. Um, when it comes to actual security challenges. Mm. And uh, to me, the name that comes to mind first is Huawei. Mm. Right? There, there's a lot of talk about how Huawei has built backdoors into routers and network infrastructure and uh, units that they produce. And uh, this is a genuine security concern in mm. Canada and the United States. And I think India has also been wary yes. and has had concerns so you on this, at, right? Uh, so, so how, so isn't that genuine? I mean, could you tell me a little bit about how we should think about that in India and the US? And so just as a, a small backdrop to when this Huawei episode really blew up, you had the CFO of Huawei being arrested in Canada. Much, uh, what everyone speculates is, of course, that it's is done at the behest of America. Um, and, and the reasoning behind that is that, yeah, Huawei is investing massively into 5G technology. And they're developing this and using that in US and in Europe and in India and many other countries. And once you, they develop this technology and actually make investments and build the infrastructure, then the supposed allegation is that they would use this to spy on people, to spy on political spying. And of course, the bigger thing is probably espionage. So um, that is the concern there and which is why they kind of made this move saying that uh, the reason behind why they did it, they gave some flimsy reason that uh, they're, I think they, they've violated the sanctions against Iran or something like that. But that's completely off the point. 
the fact is now they're really scared of Huawei and even I mean I didn't expect this but yeah India also kind of made this uh, just on uh, December 18th or 19th they issued this um, TFP or something which is basically looks at export council of telecoms they they issued a statement saying that we should also be careful about uh, national security and Huawei yeah um so the Huawei story is very interesting um over the past week so Sabrina Meng's arrest uh, happens on the exact same day when Trump and Xi Jinping are sitting in Argentina hammering out this <laughs> trade oh. battle deal. And she is the CFO of she Huawei. She is the CFO of Huawei and she is the daughter of the company's founder who was a former PLA man. PLA uh, being the, the People's Liberation Army, the, the Chinese, Chinese Army. Army. All right. Um, so, and obviously Huawei is not just any other company in China. It is a national asset of sorts. There is a lot of pride associated with the company. Um, so when Sabrina Meng gets uh, arrested, uh, uh, she gets detained uh, during a transfer of flights in Canada. The initial argument is very thin. We don't know what's happening. The initial sort of argument brought by the Canadian authorities is that uh, she's been detained at the behest of the US for potential extradition because there's a hint at violation of Iran sanctions. But then it's like it's not really Iran mm-hmm. sanctions. It's essentially lying to bankers about a certain company and its links with Huawei and that company violating Iran sanctions. And she personally sort of guaranteed that there are no linkages. So it's slightly murky as to what exactly she's being tried for. Um, But from what I understand, there is a legal basis for the US to do this and for Canada to do this. The broader story that's come out in the last week, and it's been reported across the press in Australia and other parts of the world, is um, over this past year, there have been a couple of meetings, one in London, one in Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, where uh, the sp- intelligence chiefs of the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, the five eyes countries, gathered together on two separate occasions to talk about Huawei and the potential threat from Huawei. And subsequently, now when you sort of backtrace and you look at what's happened in this year, uh, with the US first sort of limiting its dealings with Huawei and sort of issuing all these statements, subsequently Australia under Malcolm Turnbull starts to talk about Huawei not being a preferred partner in 5G um, because of, uh, uh, I think the language that he used was companies that have extrajudicial oversight cannot be sort of preferred partners for Australia. And subsequently, you have New Zealand. And now in the last week, on I think December 7th, uh, I think yeah, December 7th is when you have uh, British Telecom saying that we are going to be cutting off ties with Huawei. Um, we are awaiting in a formal Canadian response to this, which from what I understand is anticipated early next year, because Canadian telecom companies are lobbying the government saying this is madness. Just to decouple from Huawei is going to cost us at least over a billion dollars. So it's economically, it makes no sense. So there is a one line of thought where there is a concerted campaign against Huawei, uh, which is one of the biggest players in the world today in telecommunications technology. It's obviously got deep linkages in the Western world. And, and Huawei has now a big part of the internet infrastructure as we know today is Absolutely. Huawei, right? At most places in the world, Africa is deeply dominated by Huawei. Um, and because it's cheap, it's reliable, uh, it's effective. Yes, there have always been concerns about the state's role with these companies and backdoors. Um, but those concerns are not specific to Chinese companies. Um, If we remember the Snowden leaks, the PRISM scandal and the rest of it, there's a lot of concern around the internet and privacy and spying and all of that. So the big American companies, especially on the internet, also have their own secret compacts with the American government. These occur at every level. Mm. The other thing that I would say is that this current campaign against Huawei, none of these allegations, particularly the allegations against Sabrina Meng are new. Um, These date back to, I think, 2012 or sometime like that. Um, also, concern about Chinese espionage, corporate espionage, industrial espionage is not new. Under the Obama administration, the strategic and economic dialogue with China was expanded to have a cybersecurity component. The argument is that the Chinese had made certain commitments, which they have not lived up to. While that's a fair argument to make, the response in this nature is clearly political at this given point of time. This is not necessarily just about the Chinese not living up to certain commitments. It, that's part of it. But it's a political response in a broader 
context of what's happening between the US and China and the West and China with regards to innovation. Now, how this all ties up into innovation is when you read about these meetings between intelligence chiefs, none of them is talking about political espionage or undermining governments or things like that. And then some conversation of this in Africa and other parts of the world, but predominantly the conversation in these countries is about industrial espionage, the Chinese trying to get a leg up on us when it comes to innovation and, you know, violate patents and those sorts of things, you know, and that's the real sort of conflict that they have. So I would look at this fight against Huawei and this campaign with regard to Huawei um, in this context of this battle for innovation, as opposed to this necessary idea of fundamental political espionage and in that sense. And in that context, the India point that you picked up that Anupa mentioned about this sort of India's concern and national security issues with Huawei. Now, I can see in the West, the argument being made to protect our innovation. I can see why they would make that argument, given that there is a certain level of innovation happening in the West. I don't see that argument applicable to India at the moment. I understand the national security argument with regard to our security assets, our national security assets and sort of our lines of communication, political espionage. I get that argument and I think that's a fair argument to make. But from a simple economics point of view, India is at a point where we need to fundamentally establish networks, deepen our internet connectivity, um, have better capacities. And if a Chinese company, which has demonstrated its innovation capacity and ability to do some of these things, is doing them for us cheaply, why would we have a problem with that? And I think that the economic argument is weak. Um, and going back, everything does not fall down to national security. You can build bridges, you can build walls, you can do some of those things. But where you can leverage the opportunity that this presents, I think it is important to leverage the opportunity that this presents. We'll be back with Anupam and Manoj after this short break. How aware do you think you are of your laws and rights? Do you look up to laws when you are caught up in situations? Do you know what your rights are when you're stuck somewhere bad? Well, here's a show that can help you move an inch closer to being aware of what your rights are. Tune into Know Your Kanoon with me, Amar Rana. This is a podcast meant to answer all your law-related queries. Catch Know Your Kanoon every week on the IVM website or the app or anywhere you get your podcast from. Welcome back. Manoj, to me, the idea that there's this larger move against Huawei is one thing. But the idea that this results in the arrest and detention of the CFO of a company seems like a particularly interesting move that feels like the beginning of something bigger, right? It's a very, it feels like a very petty move at some level. Yeah. Where, yeah, you have this larger conversation and you have different levers that you can think about. But those are bigger things to press. But here you go and arrest an individual link to that company using some flimsy legal excuse that you would not have exercised otherwise. Hmm. Right? This was, I think, uh, around 2013 or 14 when I think there was a little in comparison to this brewing sort of trade disputes that were happening between Belarus and Russia, right? And over here, and this was happening, I think, in the context of Belarus and Russia being together in uh, a little cartel to export potash, you know, the fertilizer. And I think uh, they had a joint operation of some sort and agreements. And there's a company called Uralkali. And the CEO of Uralkali, who happens to be Russian, was traveling to Belarus and Belarus arrests him. And after this, this escalates into all kinds of funny things where Belarus is dependent on Russian milk and Russia announces uh, surprise maintenance of the pipes that, you know, send the milk to Belarus. And therefore, Belarus doesn't get milk for a while. Mm -hmm. Right. So and so you have genuine local concerns. So this this arrest of a person in the context of something so bigger, when there is no deep crime committed by that individual on them to me is a sign of something bigger. I think there are two things. One is that it is obviously a sign of something bigger. The other interesting bit is how the Chinese have responded to this. The Chinese have consciously chosen not to let this arrest interfere in this ceasefire on trade. On tariffs. Yes, on tariffs. They've just made sure that this does not, and that's 
very unlike what we would have otherwise imagined. Secondly, given that this is this arrest and this detention is with regard to extradition to the U.S., there has been no action against a U.S. business person or American citizen in China or any direct reaction or response to America. What's instead happened is that a couple of Canadians have been detained and that sort of the conflict is with Canada. And that's so, sort of so the, taking on the junior partner as opposed to taking on the big so Like a proxy war. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> First move in a proxy war. Absolutely. Right? And that okay, is, I'm, 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 again, it's very easy to draw scary analogies when from Ferdinand being shot and then Franz Ferdinand being shot and the world mm-hmm. war starting. And, you know, you can go in all kinds of scary directions and it would be perhaps a little irresponsible to speculate just from one incident. But uh, could you also go back and tell me a little about what's happening with ZTE? It's also a little bit in this telecom space. And this seems to be this one sort of maybe critical layer of technology, which is causing yeah, a um, lot of heartburn. So right? it was, uh, there was a similar sort of, uh, not similar, but uh, so ZTE was the first sort of big technology skirmish that happened in this broad war for tech dominance that's been going on. Where the, in sort of middle of last year, the US Department of Commerce announces that it sort of charges ZTE with violating US sanctions against Iran. Um, and therefore, it announces, it sort of stops all dealings between ZTE and American companies. So the component suppliers of ZTE, which are significant, uh, it relies on American companies, that trade gets halted. And that starts to hurt ZTE. It nearly cripples the company because it's so heavily dependent on American supplies. And that's where this sort of first understanding of that what is this war about? And it also sort of alters the perception amongst the Chinese leadership about what the American administration desires. And it also reinforces this need to become more self-reliant. So while you might be actually committing to say that, okay, we're going to reduce subsidies and we're going to remove these targets for indigenization and all this, um, there has been repeated emphasis amongst Chinese sort of leaders starting from Xi Jinping and going down from there, that there is a need for self-reliance in technology and we need to keep these sort of important core technologies within our hands as opposed to be reliant on others. And that reinforces this. And I my sense is that any further action against Huawei, um, I mean, the arrest of an individual is a completely different ballgame as opposed to targeting a company. And in individuals amongst sort of elite politics individuals carry a different level of significance but at least there is a sense that there is a concerted campaign against chinese tech companies zt was an example of it where there was where you were targeting a company in its supply chain huawei is an example of it where you're systematically eliminating it from your you know marketplaces uh, and you're also targeting uh, individuals um, so that will sort of reinforce the sense that we need to look inward uh, or we need to look at other places and we need to look inward. In some ways, it's an opportunity for countries like India, which I hope we leverage. So here there seem to be some early skirmishes, early challenges brewing, early actions, mostly as a Western reaction to uh, developments in China. But here, the idea of China and Chinese companies as these big players who are extremely competent, who have been backed by the state, favored by the state in many ways. How capable are they right now or in the foreseeable future to actually rival tech giants from the US? I mean, we're talking about Amazon, we're talking about Google, we're talking about Facebook. I don't know who I missed out. But you have these, these are big tech giants, right? So uh, where, how do we think about this? I think we've been slightly premature in already labeling this as a battle between, you know, your fang versus bats. And yeah, <laughs> I'm going to say what FANG, which is Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, and Bats is, you know, Beidou, uh, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, Sina. Sina. Sina being, Sina being the company that owns Weibo. Uh, Sina right. Weibo. Uh, but we have to realize that the US companies have such a massive edge. A um, couple of reasons why. One, the Chinese company operate purely within China in a very protected environment. Um, we have no clue how good they'll be when they actually get out and try to enter into other markets. So that is something that probably China will be looking at in this uh, long term. In fact, 
what I would say is you have to look at the investments and the acquisitions that Chinese companies have been doing abroad in terms of the Silicon Valley startups purely for this factor because they don't know how to work in a non-Chinese environment, non-protected environment, right? Now, they've cracked the goods game very well. They know how to compete in the world. They don't... In fact, I would say that Chinese goods would do really well and be competitive in the world even without the state subsidizing a large part of it, right? They've cracked that game. But I don't think they're at a stage where you know, you can have a Chinese company go abroad, set up and actually fight it out with Amazon or Google and so on, right? They're, they're very far behind on that terms or they don't even know what that landscape looks like, which is why they're just taking about baby steps now. But, but how would we then look at something like what's happening with uh, Chinese phone companies and how successful they are in That's markets again, like goods. India? No, but it's goods with a software layer as well, right? For example, OnePlus uh, has its entire software team sitting in Bangalore. And uh, OnePlus CEO, I think, spent six months in China and six months in Bangalore. Yeah. And it's a very different, it's a much smaller, tinier conversation. Yeah, but th- that is part of the global value chain. Again, they've gotten quite good with that. They're building the hardware. Again, it's quite a complicated and sophisticated kind of value, global value chain that's there. And China has almost seamlessly integrated into that value chain. So that's not a problem for them again. But now you're talking about purely this new economy, network goods, machine learning, all of these kind of components, right? That's what I don't see in the next few years, at least probably five years or so, ever thinking of seeing a Weibo in in the US or in uh, Europe actively kind of fighting against Facebook or WhatsApp and so on, right? So that's one part of the thing. And also you have to realize that China wants to do this. Chinese economy, I mean, the Chinese firms would want to do this because, yeah, we might keep saying that China is this really big economy, 1.3 billion people and so on. But it also has the same set of problems that India has. When, you know, when we think of India as a massive market, it it is not. I mean, again, go back to that uh, famous missing middle class kind of thing. The middle class in India is quite small. The same problem with China, right? Uh, yes, you have much point. bigger than India, but still. But still, small. it's not really big enough. You still have a lot of people who are really poor, who don't have a smartphone, who are not really a market, right? So you can't really count all of 1.3 billion as a market, right? It is big enough, but... Probably not enough as, you know, if you try and foray into other markets. So I think Chinese firms sometime will have want to step out and, and go into other markets. And for that, it has to realize how to do business there, how to be really competitive in foreign shores and so on. So that's one big aspect. And, and how they will be allowed to do so, given that American firms and European firms are not necessarily allowed to do the same in China. Yeah. 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 So I agree with a lot of what Anupam is saying. Um, and I think one example of, sort of a Chinese firm service provider, uh, internet com- app, which has struggled outside China, is uh, WeChat. WeChat is incredibly dominant in China. And it is an extremely innovative product. Yes, it sort of took off from WhatsApp. But WeChat has its own ecosystem. It's uh, it's not just a copy, you know, control C, control V product. It's quite an innovative product yet in a market like india um wechat struggled um i mean early when wechat entered i used to remember watching uh, television commercials with varun dhawan talking about wechat it's vanished um whatsapp has completely killed it without really being innovative um and so that's one of the sort of distinctions of why and how part of that is culture part of that is understanding markets part of that is operating in those markets another sort of example is uh, a lot of Chinese apps, which sort of content apps by companies like ByteDance, um, which have a fairly significant market in India today, um, are potentially on the verge of struggling because of cultural insensitivity, legal regimes. There have been stories, repeated sort of news reports about how these apps, uh, the content of these apps, which is predominantly user generated, um, is problematic, can be incendiary. And that will eventually invite some sort of, uh, first it's invited media scrutiny, eventually it will uh, invite regulatory scrutiny um, and until they adapt. And that adapting process is complicated from just this point of view of these internet products. In terms of uh, other Chinese companies going to the West, there are more than enough stories of Chinese companies that have acquired massive sort of you know excellent startups in the West or that have set up shop in the U.S., 
and have just struggled with corporate culture. Yeah. And that's left to sort of employees leaving, um, then not innovating and sort of these beautiful new offices now sitting empty. And so that's, those are problems that they have. And even on say things like data, machine learning and those sorts of things, um, they have significant problems because if you need to develop your algorithms, particularly with regard to machine learning AI, you need to have, uh, your data needs to be heterogeneous. It needs to be quality um, and given the Chinese market, there are certain limitations if you're only servicing that market. And to be fair, a lot of Chinese companies are cognizant of this. So when they work in Africa, they're looking to do some of this stuff. When they work in Southeast Asia, um, they're looking, data is something that they're looking at. It's not just about saying that this is our market and we're going to be happy with this. Um, in terms of the ability to adapt to market, I can't remember the name of the company, but I know that there is a Chinese cell phone maker. I think it's tech something, I can't remember the full name, but this was one example of a company which became innovative, which sort of adapted local conditions where it reworked its camera in the phone to be able to better recognize and to be able to better photograph darker skin, um, which gave uh, popularity to the phone, which lent a certain local flavor to the phone. Um, as opposed to, say, your other Apple products or Samsung products, any other products where cameras have an inherent bias towards fairer skin. Um, and this company identified this opportunity and it took it forward. And that's the kind of innovation that they will need as they go and build forward. Whether they have the capacity to do that or whether the model is going to be very similar assembly line, large scale, those things need to be seen. So there are cases where they've adapted and they've innovated. Um, but there are cases where they have been unable to do that. Um, so, yeah, so I don't see China today as a competitor in its... And I think the Chinese are very transparent about this. They, yeah. Their government plans also acknowledge that we are in catch-up phases. And a lot of us sitting outside might look at them cynically and look at all this cynically and saying, oh, this is just, you know, they're trying to just downplay our fears and, you know, sort of... It's also a fact. They acknowledge that there is a catch-up phase that's going on right now. Um, and they'd also acknowledge this is where we want to be. So I think there is that. And that's why this sort of technology conflict at this point of time is deeply troubling because you are in a catch-up phase for the Chinese. And, and there is also a big social component to this, right? Because if you're talking about especially social products, entertainment, social media and others, Economies and societies outside China operate fundamentally differently from China, right? Even in India, with all of our uh, limitations, we value free speech, we have a different set of governance structures, same with the United States. So as companies try and adapt to the new society, that can lead to new conflicts within China, right? Absolutely. Because Absolutely. you will have cultural diffusion and permeation. Absolutely. Much more than what the Chinese firewall wants to allow. Yeah, so I'll just give you a, a simple kind of example of how this would play out, right? The Chinese corporate, just by example, you see that they like um, really big solutions and they like really everything to be integrated. So you have Alibaba, which does shopping, which does payments, which does this thing, which has a inbuilt chat app and everything around it, right? Whereas that would really not fly elsewhere because everyone realizes that that would lead to massive privacy concerns. You don't want one company having all of this data about your uh, life in, in one place. So that would immediately kind of backfire. So then China has to learn to adapt or Chinese firms will, you know, will have to learn to adapt to say, okay, how can we break this down? What is the marketable one? What will work or elsewhere and so on? And yes, fundamentally relook at what can work in different societies. I mean, every single firm which is uh, forayed out from its natural, uh, from its country of origin has had to do this. So it's nothing different that China is doing. Right. U.S. companies, when McDonald's came to India, it had to change its beef burger to whatever chicken burger. Simple cultural thing. So it, in that sense, it's not really this daunting challenge in front of China. It just has to do what every other company uh, and country has done. But it, it's just going to take time. And I think, as Manoj said, everyone's aware of this. Uh, as in the Chinese firms are aware of it. The Chinese government is aware of it. And which is why they have these really long term plans. They're not saying that we're going to have tech domination tomorrow. But. They're looking at 2040, 20, this thing to even start the, the, the kind of real war. So in this, given what we are seeing against Etty and Huawei, um, 
one of the conversations that has started is hey there's a new iron curtain that is rising mm. so you had you know soviet union and its allies behind the iron curtain sort of a closed economy so on technology so one there are these tariff barriers that already exist they may become higher we don't know and you have some of these other barriers coming into capital so america set up its own dipp equivalent which is looking at fdi they're not alone in doing that right no they aren't they aren't um in fact this has been a concern uh, and this is not just a concern again this is that's why part of this is uh, a lot of this goes conversation revolves around trump and the trump administration but a lot of this is also predates trump by some of these concerns about chinese investments and protecting our own innovations and those sorts of things um the european union uh, earlier this month sort of had this conversation on having common rules to screen investments <clears throat> it's um i'm not sure if the rules have still been passed but there was this conversation earlier this month where there was an agreement that we will be coming uh, identifying common rules to screen investments and this is obviously they don't mention china specifically but this is essentially targeted at china because you're looking at specific sort of sectors you know quantum computing robotics those sorts of things um and you want to make sure that you keep some of these innovative companies in your own hands working within your own countries and you don't give away ownership um why i say this sort of predates donald trump is because a couple of years ago one takeover of a german company sort of rang some alarm bells in germany with regard to chinese investment and then there was another uh, proposal for investment which the german government blocked and they said we need to review this and we need to identify new rules now a couple of european countries have certain rules but the european union as a whole has been unable to agree to some of these rules um but and a lot of that is due to chinese lobbying given that there are differences within the european union um, and there are members of the european union who are also taking money from the belt and road initiative absolutely absolutely and uh, and this has been a concern for the eu but the fact that they've been able to get to an agreement amongst all the members that this is what we need to do, do and there has to be europe wide screening of some of these investments shows that there is this genuine concern uh with regard to protecting our own innovation i'd see sort of the huawei thing in the same context i'd see these investment screenings in the same context i'd also see a potential export ban in the us for which a list has been put out for a comment period uh, where again certain components certain products related to high technology again quantum computing ai etc you would put a export restriction on those products um, again with china in mind um, again that's something that's in a comment period it could potentially come up but all of these would say that this is where the line is being drawn i wouldn't necessarily call it an iron curtain given that everybody also recognizes in the same breath that given some of these technologies and given the nature of some of these technologies you need to collaborate with each other we spoke about data and how the chinese need data well so do western companies you need know how from each other you need conditions you need terrain so you need a whole set of information and and one thing that we have not actually spent much time talking about today is people right so you have large number of chinese and indian um, origin people and indian nationals and chinese nationals who work in silicon valley who for study, american companies who work who right yeah. and uh, so this there is not just companies collaborating but also people who are moving freely They're, so whichever iron curtain that you put yeah unless you now figure out how to put a um, put stronger visa controls and so on which is an entirely new can of worms yeah. beyond sort of small restrictions in capital yeah uh, we are talking about a completely fundamentally different world but it's also beyond people it's there are two other components to this if you look at uh, so while you've had these discussions and these restrictions being talked about increasingly you've had agreements being signed between american research institutes and chinese research institutes to collaborate on things like ai baidu was recently picked up uh, as part of a sort of global ethics conversation on ai these are technologies which we don't necessarily know how they are going to develop you need to develop standards on them uh, you need to develop regulations on them and you can't do them in isolation so therefore you have to have this conversation this has to be an engagement so probably not an iron curtain but a silk curtain <laughs> um but it's actually in the interest of both china and the us to 
engage with each other a lot more than work in isolation. Um, the, China could benefit from some of the innovation and technology that's being developed in the US, which it can then adapt and so on. Um, the US needs China on board because it doesn't want, let's say, at the worst level, China to develop a completely rival technology, which is out of bounds of anyone else and which is, you know, ultimately uh, not conforming to the standards and even ethical considerations and moral uh, dimensions that the rest of the world has agreed. In fact, it is better if China is involved in the developing process. It conforms to the standards. It conforms to other kinds of uh, protocols that has been kind of agreed upon in an international stage. So in that sense, it just makes sense. And of course, even US companies would benefit a lot from collaborating with Chinese companies because Chinese companies know a lot about China. And you can't leave any technology that is being developed in the rest of the world, cannot leave out one big, this thing, which is China, or for that matter, even India, right? But you need... But so, I just wanted to add that, uh, sort of amid all of this that's been happening, you've also had, uh, and this is going back to this idea of standards, you've had a new subcommittee on standards with regard to AI being set up uh, at the international level. Um, the first meeting of that subcommittee in April this year happens in Beijing mm -hmm. in 2018. So, you understand that, that Beijing is going to be a big player. It's going to also dictate terms. It's going to be a rule maker in this area. So, you can't isolate. It's just not feasible. And therefore, some of this conversation, yes, there is a sort of competition. There is jockeying for positioning and all of that. But some of this conversation is also going to happen whatever national conditions. Therefore, this idea of an iron curtain where you know, you have a Berlin Wall where people can't move across and things, ideas could go across. Very, It's very difficult for all of that to happen. That's extremely difficult in today's world. And it's counterproductive. Whatever the Chinese firewall may be. Absolutely. It's it's counterproductive. It's counterproductive. And but as but as it will lead to new conflicts around the relationship between the individual and the state. Absolutely. Right? Because outside China and inside China, those are two fundamentally different. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, uh, Manoj and uh, Anupam, thank you so much. So, my takeaway from this is there may be a new silk curtain forming. <laughs> and there is this longer, not just competition, but uh, but a war that might happen for technological dominance. Yeah. And it is the Chinese long march towards technological dominance uh, that's taking place. And we will see a lot of very interesting things happen within this context and this framework over the next months, years and decades to come. Yeah, and I think we should to just extend the Long March analogy. The Long March was essentially a strategic retreat as opposed to an actual march to some place, to a destination. It was a retreat before you actually continue to fight. Um, so you will see Chinese and other parties retreating and fighting, retreating and fighting. This will not be a one-way sort of conflict. And uh, we in India and will unfortunately not just have to grab popcorn in this fight, but we'll have real stakes and uh, perhaps even opportunities. And so we'll really need to see what comes in the rest of 2019 and the years to come. Manoj and uh, Anupam, thank you so much for coming on the Prakati podcast. It was a pleasure having you here again. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Really interesting conversation. Thank you for staying with us till the end. Check out episode 77, the first episode in our two-episode special on the US-China battle for tariffs, if you haven't already. Have any questions or comments? Write into podcast at thinkpragati.com. If you listen to the show on iTunes, then please leave us a rating and a review. It would mean a lot to us. The Pragati Podcast is available on the IVM Podcast app, on thinkpragati.com, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We are there everywhere. Advertising is dead. Yep, you heard me right. Advertising is dead. We're all in the content business now. Let's not call it news, TV, radio, etc, etc. It's all content and we're in the middle of this weirdly exciting phase where all the borders and lines that have been drawn over decades has been swept away by this lovely thing called the internet. We're a show where we don't dwell on just the stuff that is now, but rather the wider stuff about advertising, media, content and the whole goddamn circus surrounding it. 
tune in every Tuesday for our weekly unboxing of the mystery box we used to call advertising. I'm Varun Dugirala, co-founder and content chief at The Glitch, and this is my new podcast, Advertising is Dead. Have you gotten yourself a gym membership and shown up only a few times? Are long working hours cutting your fitness goals short? How about you change things a little? Even a small effort can make a big difference. And I'll tell you how and what exactly. Hi guys, I'm Coach Urmi and on the Kinetic Living Podcast, you can look forward to some interesting stories of people who have changed the way they look at fitness after their kinetic journeys. Episodes out every Wednesday on the IVM app, website and anywhere you get your podcast from.